You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. You know, for me, I loved reading, but I didn't exist on those pages. And when a child of any age doesn't exist in our mainstream, in our books, in our stories, they start believing they're not important. The following event was recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders past and present. We pay respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. On behalf of the Wheeler Centre and the Malthouse Theatre, I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight. My name's Brodie Lancaster and I'm so rapt to be here tonight to talk about the book, film and now stage play that tell the story of a family, of culture and secrets and a vision of Australia. I'd like to start by introducing Melina Marquetta, who wrote Looking for Ella Brandy 30 years ago. Melina is an internationally best-selling and award-winning author of 17 books, as well as the screenwriter of the 1999 film adaptation of Looking for Ella Brandy, for which she won an AFI award and an independent film award for best screenplay. That film introduced audiences to our next guest, Pia Miranda. Since that breakout performance as Josie Ella Brandy, Pia has become one of Australia's best loved and critically acclaimed actors. Her body of film work includes her body of film work includes lead roles in Garage Days, Travelling Light and The Tender Hook, as well as TV roles in The Secret Life of Us, Wentworth and Mustangs FC. Not to mention, she was recently the winner of a little show called Australian Survivor. Following the closing credits of the film, Ella Brandy remained a beloved Australian book and film until this year, when the Malthouse's new stage production debuted earlier this month. It's the brainchild of Stephen Nicolazzo, a theatre maker, director, and co-founder of queer theatre company Little Ones Theatre. He's also co-artistic director of Western Edge and the recipient of a Green Room Award for Best Director. Stephen was also the recipient of the Besson Family Artist Award and member of the 2019 Directors Lab at Lincoln Centre. To find a new way to tell the story of the Alabrandi women, Stephen sought out Vidya Rajan, a performance maker, comedian and award-winning writer for screen and stage. She has worked as a writer and performer for ABC Comedy and SBS, as well as Red Stitch, Belvoir, Malthouse and The Blue Room. Before that, she trained as a community and criminal lawyer, which is very Josie Alabrandi. Pia, the book was published about six or seven years ago, but years before you played Josie. What was your experience of it? Had you read it? Um, like, how did you come to play Josie? I hadn't read it because in Melbourne it wasn't on the VCA curriculum. So it was a huge thing in Sydney, but not so much in Melbourne. And really the first time I heard about it was I was walking down Ackland Street and I saw Kit Gurry in a Sivlaki shop eating a Sivlaki. <laughs> And he Stop. looked really depressed and he, I'm like, what's wrong? He went, oh, I'm going for this film and they can't find the lead girl and it's all really depressing and yada, da, 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 and I don't know if I'm going to get it. And I was like, oh, that sounds terrible. And I walked home and I got home and I got a phone call from my agent saying, we want you to audition for Looking for Ella Brundy. Um, and so I rang Kik and I said, can I borrow your book? And that's when I read it. Wow. Yeah. The thought of you being a Melbourne girl is so jarring in my brain <laughs> as well, can I just say. I'm like, Pia Miranda lives in Sydney. <laughs> um, 
And Melina, you are understandably very protective of Josie's story. Um, and I understand that over the years you have had offers or approaches to adapt it in new ways. Um, without going into too much detail, um, why do you kind of say no to some? And what was it about this retelling that made you kind of give it your blessing the way that you did? Look, I think it was, um, I don't know. I, I can't even say it's it's a gut reaction. You know, maybe I was ready for it. Um, I kept, I know this sounds strange, but I kept on getting asked about musicals. Could you imagine Ella Brundy the musical? Always. It was just, you know, it was constant. Um, but I think that, and at the same time as Stephen, it was almost exactly the same time we did get approached by a, um, you know, a leading theatre company and I knew straight away that I, regardless of, you know, whether they were going to come through, I wasn't interested. I wanted, I always want something different. I've seen, I've lived this story. I've seen it a hundred times. I've read it a hundred times. I've taught it for two years in a row when I was teaching because it was on the HSC and I had no choice. So... You know, someone had to come with something just different. And I remember Stephen came up and we had coffee in my local area. And I just thought, and, and I have to stress this so much. Um, it's not an anti, you know, um, Italian director thing. But I was, that was never going to be the number one thing. Because what happens is it becomes their story. And one thing I was very protective about is that it's Josie's story and, and theirs. And you, I didn't want someone coming in, you know, I want to retell my story. So I've actually been very cautious. Um, but I just felt that it was Stephen's um, vision. And I remember being in Melbourne um, a couple of months later and I bumped into Christos um, Zolkus, who we were on the same panel, and I asked because he, you had worked with him. And he said, oh, he's great, you know. So I just, I trusted him. It's, I think that's the word. It's trust and it's why I have no idea, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen. I'm going to watch it in Sydney. I couldn't be here last week. But it was trust and, um, and it takes a long time to hand over your baby <laughs> to someone else. It's your firstborn, right? <laughs> really, and, and I do, um, my mother always said about Ella Brundy, the film, she was so protective. She said, they're going to make the Italians look ridiculous. And that was a really big deal for us because in film and television, Italians were always the villains or they did look ridiculous. So that's why we're protective about it. This is a precious story and we don't want to be treated as if, you know, um, we're kind of just laughing stocks of, you know, um, society. And um, I just got a sense that there was great love there. And I think that's probably what it is. It was great love. Mm. Um, Stephen, I've heard you speak about this in, in interviews um, promoting the play about being on a plane and kind of Alabrandi coming to you as the story that you wanted to kind of devote the next chunk of your artistic life to. Can you describe that for the audience? Yeah. Um, well, I'd gone to an international director's lab in New York um, at the Lincoln Centre and so I was meeting directors from all over the world and we were starting conversations about... Um, what are the the canonical stories of the places where we're from? And I started thinking a lot about looking for Ella Brandy and the fact that in terms of theatre, 
the only canonical texts that were being put on the main stage were Anglo-Saxon um, classics. And, and I wanted to change that. Um, so on the plane ride back, I just kept thinking, what would a stage version of Ella Brandy look like? And what would it sound like? And what would it feel like? And that's what drove me to then hassle Molina. <laughs> no, 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 I know, but you know, it's just, it was a really, it was about kind of thinking about context and what needs to change. Um, and also because I'd been working with this extraordinary actor, Chanella McCree, who plays Josephine in the stage show, I knew that there needed to be a work w that would place her experiences of the world, because she is Samoan Italian, um, into a new context. And that felt like this was the story to do that. And is it right that video you kind of responded to like a prompt or a call out? What what did that involve from, from Stephen and the Mould House? Um, yeah, well, uh, Stephen messaged me to, we'd worked on something previously together and just knew each other from, <laughs> you know, being in Melbourne and in theatre. Um, and he, we had, I think, a, a brunch. Uh, and he said, you know, I've got this, I've got potentially the rights to this. Um, they will be looking for samples. It's not a done deal or anything. Uh, here's my vision for it. Here's some of my vision for it. Um, it was interesting he said the intergenerational thing because that's already something I was interested in. It was a, like a good um, meeting of minds, I think. And then he said, you know, go and do a sample, like a, like a scene or two. Um, and <laughs> but, you know, no guarantees and we'll, we'll let you know. Um, and so I kind of went away, read the book um, and just sort of found my own like what I wanted to say with it and yeah taking on board some of his things but you've got to find your own thing as well um and then I wrote like <laughs> she wrote 25 pages yeah I was like oh I can't stop I'm sorry and then I was just like is this too many pages whatever I'll just send it in uh and then yeah <laughs> so did the scenes in those 25 pages make it onto the stage yeah, two of the, there's a scene between Christina and Michael and then there's a Margaret Throsby scene um, that was, someone knows, um, that are still, the seeds of that are still there, yeah. And then there was another scene that's more like about Christina's dating life, which has been cut, but it's um, for the real fans can get it out of me at some <laughs> point, <laughs> yeah. Any scene like in the book that reinforces Christina is hot. She's like hot and young. <laughs> when I was a teenager, she was the mum and now I am basically Christina's age. I treat the work so differently. Um, Melina, you mentioned before teaching the book uh, in your capacity as a HSC teacher, a high school teacher. Um, I'm curious to know, when you were writing it and when it was first published in 1992, what your life was like writing it and then after it came out, kind of how that changed? Um, was it a slow burn or was it kind of an instant... Um, you know, bestseller, the becoming the classic that it is today? Well, you know, I always say that I calculated that I knew 200 people in the world <laughs> and I thought 200 people would read it. Um, the sad thing is that when I first started writing it, I was living, you know, at home with my parents and I'm now living at home with my mother. <laughs> <So> <laughs> nothing's changed there. But, no, I had a very, uh, a very internal world, um, uh, you know, I, I always say this, I left school when I was 15 because I didn't have the confidence. Um, but I just knew, I know this sounds like big-headed, I feel the same way for my child. I just knew I was a contender, but I just didn't, like it was all in my head. And I just thought if I could press a button and get everything that's in my head out, 
I just think something wonderful could happen. Um, but it's not that easy. It's, you know, it's just about rewriting and rewriting and just being rejected probably about, I think it's about seven times. Um, I muck around about this. It was back in the day of incinerators in your backyard and I used to burn some of the rejection letters. Um, but, you know, I have still got the rejection letters. Um, but I truly, you know, for me, I loved reading but I didn't exist on those pages and when a child of any age doesn't exist in our mainstream, in our books, in our stories, they start believing they're not important and I think that that's probably what contributed to me not having a lot of confidence. Just um, And so for me I just wanted, I wanted our story because I was reading other people's stories, loving them but they weren't mine and um, so it came from, you know, that but just a very um, I don't know, it was a simple, beautiful life and it overwhelmed me and it's why this is so wonderful. It's 30 years this year because I get to enjoy it without being intimidated by it. I've, I, I no longer get intimidated by, you know, the success. You said before about the people kind of wanting to adapt it over the years that you have seen it a million times and you kind of... Um, it sounded like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, it sounded like you kind of approach it as an audience member in some ways now and you want to see something new with it. Is that, um, is that the case? Do you kind of have distance from it enough now? Or um, no, no, because I feel still very close to it and I still want to work on, on something to do with it. But I, st I felt stage, I wanted the experts, I wanted s the people who have passion for the stage it'd be kind of arrogant for me to think that I can do it all. And I think that there was a bit of an offer of, you know, do you want to be... I thought, no, I want someone else to do it. I want, I want to see someone else's vision. And it was the same with the film. I remember people would say um, on set, I remember, you know, the, the crew would say, you know, is it as good as the book? And I'd say, no, it's different. And it's that difference that I'm interested in. I don't want to sit there and watch you know, the same thing and I felt that that's what these interpretations, whether it's the film, whether it's the stage play, um, at least with the film I felt that I had a grasp on how to write, whereas with st I, I still feel as if there are two areas that are really kind of the unknown and one is um, writing for the stage and the other one is, you know, picture books are still a frightening thing for me because I feel as if they take a skill that's beyond what I can do um, I'm getting there with, you know, one thing, but I, I don't know if I'll feel confident to write for stage. Um, Vidya and Stephen, I'm very curious to know, um, In you set the book kind of around the time that the... Sorry, you set the stage play around the same time as the book came out. Was there ever a conversation about um, bringing it into 2022? Um, you know, obviously the film came out around seven, eight years after the the book and was very much like that Y2K era. Um, can you tell me a little bit about whether there was a conversation about that and the stories you might be telling in those different decades? Um, yeah, I think that's always like the first question with an adaptation is when is it, how contemporary is it? Are we gonna find out what's contemporary about it through just thematics we're bringing out or literally the time period? Um, there were a few things that made us go, no, this is definitely, we, I think we said 96. Well, like we split the difference between the book uh, and the film. Um, there's a reference to Howard in there, uh, but um, 
Yeah, so around that period, I think for a few reasons, one, it was like that that time period hasn't really lived on in our theatres. Like, in, I haven't seen any works about that really from an Italian-Australian experience um, lens. Also, a lot of the important trauma and historical details, like with Nonna's experience of like being a post-war migrant and the camps and things like that, don't really, if she's around in 2022, she's, I don't know, she's probably, you know, like past. Um, so <laughs> it's just, we needed her to, that history was important and so it needed to be that time period, I think, yeah. And Melina mentioned something in the early days where we were talking about the sort of shame of the word um, yeah. bastard and the kind of the, the plight of the single mother um, and child and that in 2022 that might be look really different and I think because it was such a big part of what drew us to adapting it, we wanted to retain that sense of the guilt and the shame and, and not to place it into an, a contemporary time period um, so that we could really see the effects of, as Vidya was saying, you know, that particular generation of migrants. Yeah. yeah. In a post Gilmore Girls world, <laughs> um, single mother and her young yeah. daughter. Yeah. <laughs> the Gilmore um, Girls are terrible. <laughs> yeah. I had like I mean, one. The curse with that family. <laughs> <laughs> one early thought of, I'm like, what is Josie doing now? Like, should we see her in the future? And then I was like, no. <laughs> no. Um, Pia, I'm curious to know um, for the last. 20 years you have been the face of Josie and I imagine that comes with um, people like me and people like everyone else who grew up with the film um, externalising all of their feelings about it to you about um, not just your performance but what the book and the film meant to them. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what it's been like to kind of embody the character over the last however many years? Yeah, I think sometimes I have to remind people that I didn't write the book because I get a lot of credit <laughs> for something that I didn't do. So I do have to, yeah, remind people that Melina wrote it because I get, and I've always gotten a lot of people coming up who, who feel very emotional about the book and I think, uh, and the film, and I think very early on I realised that, you know, I had a very special, I guess I'm going to say job, but I had you know, a job as an ambassador for not just Alabrandi, but for the migrant experience. So a lot of people from different migrant families, really, it means a lot to them, not just Italian people. And so, you know, the fact that for 20 years I could make someone's day just by having a chat, that's a pretty special thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's been wonderful in that respect. Mm. Yeah. Um, Vidya, I would love to know a little bit about... Um, what the and Melina too, like you have both adapted the same work into different mediums, um, coming at it from very different places and times. Obviously, um, maybe video. I'll start with you. What is the? Maybe I'm just asking this selfishly because I'm curious to know what is the process like of adapting a um, a book into a completely different medium. What you decide to keep how you kind of merge characters together, things like that. Can you tell us some of the decisions that you made in bringing it to the stage? Uh, yeah, it's been a while now. <laughs> um, some of the decisions are very practical in theatre, especially when, <laughs> when they go, well, we're not giving you more than five actors to do that. You're like, all right, so <laughs> there's going to be doubling, so I can't put that scene next to that one because they can't get <laughs> changed by that time. So there's just things like that that people sometimes don't realise. Um, so that's a practical bit of it. Um, but 
I guess it all starts with like, what do you want to say now? What do you want to emphasize? Um, yeah, wh what can you find that connects with you? And then also responds to, you know, the director's vision for it. Um, and then I think with this one, the particularly unique pressure of it, um, of an adaptation of an incredibly successful and beloved book is that people are quite possessive of it. So um, I found out quite quickly when I would just like mention to a friend that I was doing this, the reaction was so intense that I was just like, okay, so it's a bit like going to a rock concert and you have the band that you love doesn't play your favorite songs, you're gonna get really annoyed. So I was also just like, we can change, <laughs> you know, we can change a bit uh, and, and we have changed our emphasis, but you still wanna hit a few points that make people happy with what exists already. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it totally does. Yeah. What were the kind of the, the points in Alabrandi that you knew were non-negotiables? Um, well, we needed that Jacob Josie uh, sexiness <laughs> in that scene. Um, so, I mean, definitely that. Um, I think people are very possessive about have a say day for some reason. So, that's <laughs> definitely <laughs> in there. Um, we love when teenagers just have opinions. When they have opinions, <laughs> yeah. And I, but I think there's also there's like a dance underneath have a say day because it's when she's impressed with Jacob for the first time. But Melina can say if that's right or not. Um, and then... Yeah, what else, Stephen? I, I feel like my brain's gone foggy now. Uh, a non-negotiable for me was um, Nonna Katia's story. Oh, yeah, well... Um, yeah. And the the revelation of Marcus Sanford yes. and the kind of detail that is in the novel in particular around that um, and the historical element, that was definitely one that we wanted to keep. And we wanted to make sure that... Um, that John Barton and Ivy were equally beautiful and sensitive and completely evil. Mm -hmm. so, so, like, um, that was something that was important as well. Mm. Yeah. I feel like watching the film or reading the book now with 2022 eyes and seeing, like, a little young liberal um, being like, I'm going to run Sydney Uni next year, it's, like, not as romantic <laughs> as <laughs> it was when I was younger. <laughs> totally. But you still yeah. see his, sh his own shame and of he has course. his own kind of... He's uh, not okay. No. He's not. But the similarities <laughs> were really interesting for us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and Ivy, just brutally terrible. Well, yeah. it's like we have to collapse ca characters as well. Yeah. We don't have the luxury of words or like a film as well. So it's, yeah, those kind of decisions. Yeah. yeah. Her comeuppance is a... Uh, non-negotiable for me oh yeah, true yeah, yeah. yes, you yes. Have to be, yeah. she has to yeah. get the, the nose please <laughs> yeah you mentioned seeing more of um of katia's um you know that mm. being such a such a key part of the story and in watching the stage adaptation a couple of days ago i um was really struck by how when you're not seeing the story entirely through josie's perspective how much of um nonna's inner life you get mm -hmm. um can you talk a little about uh, visualizing that, visualizing the feelings of a woman who keeps them so tightly under wraps and kind of repressed. Well, I think that that was important to us um, because I was, I think, one of the. I was like, well, it's all of their coming of age. Let's see how much of their lives we can fit in. And there is a draft that had a lot more <laughs> of their side quests, but um, they. 
yeah, those moments, like, obviously it changes when it's being directed, but they're, they're in the script as well. Like, you know, we see Nana alone. Because <laughs> remember once we were joking, we are just like, is she just at home the whole, she's at home the whole time? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, what's she doing and how does that feel? And what is that loneliness for her? Because it's almost like she's coming to the same age that Christina was when their lives changed. And Josie's getting to that age too. So there's like a fear that history will repeat itself. And like the, the burden of the curse is becoming present again. So we're mm. like, what does that look like in someone's body at home alone? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of how we thread the passata making into the show. Like, so it's not just the, the bookends of the work, it's threaded through the entire piece so that mm. Cartier goes through the process of making the passata as a kind of act of dealing with her shame. Mm. Mm. So it's the domestic divine. That's my favourite kind oh. of way of approaching these Adore. things. Yeah. Um, Melina, I'm curious to know, you having written the book and then the screenplay, um, did you have a similar kind of experience of going, these are my non-negotiables, were you precious about adapting your own work or were you kind of like, I can do whatever I want because it's my story? Like, how loyal did you feel you had to be to your original work? Oh, I just, everything was a battle really because I just didn't have a, like a choice really. So you were fighting for your choices. My, my thing with an adaptation um, is that you almost have to get the book and smash it on the ground mm. and then pick up the pieces but out of sequence. Um, and it was kind of brutal finding that out because I thought it was about taking out he says, she says. You know, <laughs> I, I'm really good at dialogue but, you know, there's so much more to a film script than dialogue. But I remember... Um, you know, it was back in the day when there was um, the FFC and the AFC and all these funding bodies, like so many, and it was like what we were, I was speaking to video, or video was speaking to me about it. You know, you'd have all these um, different responses from the funding bodies. So someone would say, I just hated the granny. I hated the draconian, um, you know, nun. And another one saying, I just loved the nonna. I loved it. So they were also contradictory and brutal, like so brutal. And once again, you just had to sift through it. And one of the, the, the thing that I've learned about film is that you can't write a film script for the people who loved the novel. Um, so, for example, you know, someone would read the film script and say, too many girls, you've got to cut them down. They don't have a love for your characters, so we had to choose, you know, and obviously Sarah is such an amazing um, character, but we went for the cultural side of things. So Lee, who I love as, you know, a character in the novel, she's out. We have to pick between, you know, Ivy and Carly, you know, who's the meanest, you know, and it was Carly. So it was just kind of making decisions like that. But I always think it's similar to what you were saying, when you, when you adapt, you have to pick three or four things about the story that people loved. And, of course, the not negotiables were the three generations of women. Um, you know, Josie going to a private school on the other side of the city. Josie falling in love with a boy, um, you know, from, you know, kind of the wrong side of town. But also wanting the boy who's from the right side of town. Once you've got that, you can kind of develop a story around it. And I, I think it's why I'm looking so forward to this because my love of those three women and their stories, like, you know, I want to write about, you know, the fact one day that those three women at the age of 17 
you know, one has power like Josie, the other one had a child and the other one was probably sent to the other side of the world to get married to a man she didn't know. So I just think it's it's exploring those women mm. and the particular periods they belong to that always interests me. Mm. Um, but scripts get moulded, you know, if it's not a producer, it's a, um, a distributor or a funding body and you're constantly having to negotiate with them mm. and it never becomes you know what you think you wanted but in saying that I just loved the film mm -hmm. and of course you know when you have Pia you know playing Josie and a different Josie to my Josie mm -hmm. I mean different but once again I was looking for different mm -hmm. so I was there when she came into the um, room to audition mm -hmm. and I knew it was her I mm -hmm. knew um, so you know in my heart that was her so mm -hmm. Um, and that was important to me. Mm. Remember, I smiled at you, and you wouldn't smile back because they told you they not told to. Not they to told you not to smile at <laughs> any of the actors, and yeah. I smiled at Melina, and she looked at me like. Oh. And I thought, oh, <laughs> because all, all the actors would come to me, and everyone would say, "Don't," <laughs> you know, because then you'll get attached to everyone, and you know. So, I like how you said, um, you know, she was not not the Josie that you had written, but a new one. Um, and I was telling you guys backstage that the film was my introduction to the story. And so when I finally read the book, I was like, Josie doesn't have frizzy hair. Mm. She has like smooth, shiny hair. Yeah. <laughs> like Pia Miranda. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like what we were saying about, I love the time period because it's all true what you know been saying about, for me, you can't let go of that story during the war or the intern, you know, being interned. Mm. And really, Alibrandi is about the 70s, written in the 80s and distributed in the 90s. So um, that's what it was like. I mean, mm. you guys won't remember what the 70s were, but it was a tough, tough, tough time mm -hmm. um, to be a migrant. And um, that was that period that I was writing about. But of course, it gets shaped into something different, you know, mm. um, when it gets distributed. Mm -hmm. Um, Pia, I want to pick up that anecdote you gave before of running into Kit Gurry and then borrowing his copy of the book. That's incredible. Um, so kind of after that, you, you read the book and then obviously came into audition for Molina. What was your process like of, um, I imagine, moving to Sydney for a time, um, making the film and then was it your first feature? It was. I'd been on Neighbours before. That was really my sort of main gig. Um, and then I moved to Sydney, my sister lived in Sydney, so it was easy in that respect. But I think what happened to us was that it was a good six to eight month period of just workshopping and workshopping before we even stood on set. So what they did was they really sent us to all these great drama coaches and, um, you know, we did these incredible workshops. So we was, by the time we got to set, we were so immersed in these characters that we'd been living with them for so long that we were just desperately ready to start. So it was a pretty incredible time and I did get to work with these amazing dramaturgs that I would never have had the chance to work with if I hadn't been cast. But it was it was all in, wasn't it? It was just all day, every day for months and months and months before we got to work. Mm. All unpaid, just quietly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love the arts. <laughs> Even when the um, film, when it was being filmed, I remember discovering that they didn't have people for the extra scenes and I was teaching and I'm like I'll bring down the kids for an excursion you know um, so if you see have a say day the dance scene 
um, I forgot w what other scene it is, but a lot of them are my the boys I taught and Aww. my friends, um, the kids from my friend's school and the local schools. So when we went to see it for the f like one of the first times, I remember sitting next to someone who didn't teach with me and everyone was just laughing their heads off. And she's like, why? She said, oh, because that's Brandon on the screen, you know, and everyone, <laughs> he's the naughty boy, you know, whatever. But it was just, that's what we had to do, yeah. you know. And so they had it sponsored by Subway and the kids got fed Subway. So, you know, it's just, you, you discovered the behind the scenes yeah. you know, of, of the budget and how important the budget was. Yeah. What was it like teaching at that time when you were um, kind of, the celebrity <laughs> um, writer and, and screenwriter taking the kids to be on a film set. Anyone who's a teacher in this room knows how humbling <laughs> teaching is. I used to spend, there was a time when the film, no, not even when the film came out, but the awards season, where I was winning awards at night and telling kids to pick up papers off the playground at, during the day. Um, look, I just always think... Um, you just that was my that was my job and I had a passion for my job and it was wonderful um you know to be getting the accolades from the film but nothing much changed um it was hard uh, the one thing I do remember from teaching and bringing the kids down to the scenes was um I'm going to blame the maths teachers you know being told you can't take them you know there's a test there's an exam on that day and I remember going to the deputy who said to me, I'm not here to put obstacles in your path and they're not going to remember the exam. Sorry, they're not going to remember the maths test. They're going to remember that they were part of this. And I really loved that, that I was, you know, I, I loved that the boys I taught were part of that. But um, there was just no room for ego. Mm -hmm. It would have been crushed in the classroom and crushed in the... Um, especially in the staff room, so you just mm. really made sure <laughs> you made sure that you were just on the level with yeah. everyone else. You're so. making your coffee from the big yes. like urn with everyone the else. International roast, yeah, <laughs> or Nest Coffee in the show. <laughs> we just got the international roast with the lid off it all night long. So um, yeah, it's just I think that there's no room for it, but um, it was exciting and everyone was excited for me. So yeah. that's one thing. You know, it's not as if they ignored the fact that, you know, the AFI happened and it was mm. pretty exciting, wasn't it? So, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't ignore it, but it's like, okay, let's get back to the job. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it Alabrandi or a later book? I remember hearing you speak once about kind of getting your students buy-in on the way that you wrote teenagers' voices. Did that happen in a later book? It happened with Francesca. Yeah. And it's the same. Francesca's my second novel. And it's like what you said before... By the time I wrote Saving Francesca, I, was, um, I wasn't near Josie's age anymore. I was near Christina's age and I was more interested in, you know, that age group and I just didn't feel as if I could write from a kid's point of view. And I remember one of my students, um, you know, he had a book, not mine, and he had a book and he said, I just don't like the fact that she thinks she knows our voice. And that frightened me because I was starting to write... Francesco and I said to him you know do you want would you read the manuscript but I said to him you've got to promise me promise promise that it doesn't leave your house and um, so he had the manuscript and he had a twin brother who came to me the next day and he said I really loved it I read it at our place <laughs> <laughs> and then a friend of theirs um, came to me on the Monday and said I really loved the book I read it at their place you know so <laughs> Um, and they loved it, obviously, because they were in it. But yeah. um, they came to me with, you know, 
pages and pages of notes. Mm. Um, so I had to give them a period off for them to... Yeah. <laughs> that was the deal, okay? Get us out of maths and we'll talk to you about it. Yeah. So. Um, but I was desperate for those notes because it, yeah. it was it was their voice that mm. I was trying to um, make sure that I had captured. Mm. Um, I would love to talk a little about the, the music, Stephen, in the stage show um, and the way that it, it sets the time but it also kind of um you know I like I don't want to harp on the fact that I'm so attached to the film and the and the musical cues throughout you know Teenager of the Year by Lotel is in there and then we've got Savage Garden in the stage show um can you tell me a little about your musical decisions in directing both the Italian the more traditional stuff and the more contemporary stuff yeah, I think, um, so the composer, Daniel Nixon and I, like we work together really closely while we're working through a script, or, like when it's in development. So there was a decision made um, by me to incorporate or, like authentic folk music and smash that against kind of the contemporary, well not contemporary now, but well, contemporary for me, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like a <laughs> 90s music of the time. And I wanted to make sure that like the focus on the intergenerational trauma and the history, that that was actually the soul of the show. Um, and I went to a Posada day in Coburg um, that was run by a community centre because um, my family never did Posada day. I never got the chance to engage with those sorts of rituals. And so I went to one as a bit of research and there was a band playing um, called Sanacori and Rosa Voto, who is the vocalist who you hear throughout the play, um, she sang all these extraordinary songs from all over Italy. Um, so there was like Calabresi, there was... Um, Neapolitan music, there was Sicilian music, and she just was so inspiring that I just walked up to her and I said, can I buy your CD? Because I still have a CD player. And, <laughs> and can, do you want to work on the show? And so she became quite integral to how we sonically explored history and culture. Um, and then the decisions with the, ni the 90s music were basically, and if I'm really crass, um, songs that I love to get drunk to with my friends. <laughs> and so, and so, so Sorrento Moon by Tina Arena is one of them. And the second is I Want You by Savage Garden. But I thought also that that taps into a particular nostalgia for a particular age group that probably had more affinity with the novel and the film than those that have read it post that period. So, and I thought that was important too, as you know, as someone of that generation to kind of celebrate Australian music mm. in a in a kind of tacky way as well. Mm. Yeah. Not da that they're tacky, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing Darren Hayes' voice is just a Well time in high machine. school I used to get compared to Darren Hayes and I was like, that's quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hold on to that for a little <laughs> yeah, while. Yeah, I'm holding on to it my whole life. Yeah. I'm just keeping an eye on time. I think we might have time for a few questions at the end. So if you have one, please sit on it for a couple more minutes and I will call on you. You're gonna have to yell out to me. So if you're struggling with projection, it might be tricky. But um, if you have a burning question, I will come to you in, in a couple of minutes. Why did I say that in the most awkward way? Sorry. Um, 
you, you brought up Posada Day, Stephen, and I would love to, to talk about it um, to kind of wrap things up because it does bookend the film. It is a, a constant in the stage show. It's obviously very present in the book as well. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit from each of you about what, what that tradition specifically, but also what tradition in general represents and the role it plays in the story that you've all told. Um, and Pia, I might start with you because in your performance as Josie, her journey kind of is bookmarked by Posada Day, the embarrassment and like the annoyance on your face at the beginning of the film. And then this kind of like freedom, finding freedom through embracing tradition is there by the end. Can you tell us a little bit about performing that scene in that backyard, what it was like? It was uh, Melina's, yeah, Nonna's backyard. Really? And it was a real Posada Day pretty much. Like we, and. It was great for me because I've never been to one. So um, my nonna was like, I'm not stupid enough to go and do all the hard work. She just got the free posada <laughs> from, her, from her cousins and sisters. I was so going to say, she's not getting she's Legos, really right? No, no, she got the posada. She just didn't yeah. go to the posada day. So, uh, you know, for me as a person, people are constantly coming up to me in the street and like, I did tomato day or, you know, they'll send me pictures of their posada day on Instagram and I've never done one so I'm like great <laughs> um, but so it was exciting for me it was a really it, you know it was all family of Melina um, it was really at her nonna's house it was like a real Posada day so it was just it didn't really feel like we were performing it just more felt like we were just immersing ourselves Kate in this Woods always says that everyone was an expert so she didn't oh, know yeah, who to yeah. listen to you know it was just everyone had their different because everyone in the backyard was Italian. Everyone had their different story about how it's done. Mm -hmm. So she had to they make sure. They were fighting, like true Italians. Like, don't do it this way. Don't listen to her this way, yeah. Was there family there or were they all actors and extras? Family. Yeah. It was half-half. So, um, so my mum and dad, um, well, it's funny because at the end when they all, um, they're eating, my grandmother was also there. But there were probably about four or five family members um, and the others were actors, mm. um, but they were all Italian, so they, they all knew what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> One was an expert. <laughs> oh, my God, your family world and your, like, film world truly <laughs> coming together. Well, I had said to... Um, Kate, Wood, Kate, Kate had said to me, you know, show me what an Italian house looks like because they were looking for an Italian house and mm. I showed them my nonna's house and she's, they thought this is perfect, so... Mm. That's how that happened. Oh, wow. Um, Stephen, I'd love to hear a little from you as well because the, the stewing of the tomatoes become... they become These bec are more than just props in the, in the show, you know. It's this whole kind of, like, sensory element. Um, I was going to say, what's your relationship to the tradition of... But you've already kind of told us that. But um, how did you kind of conceive of what we see here tonight on the stage and how that one visual element and the process of Katya making the Posada. I feel like it was a script, yeah. I mean, it's with Vidya and I spoke about it for so long that we wanted the spine of the play to be about Posada and mm. ritual. And so there were images in the script that Vidya created, like yeah. when Ivy got punched in the face, she was originally going to be smashed. That's a stage direction. Sorry, spoilers, but with yeah. she Posada comes bottle. up covered in Posada because <laughs> it's like blood. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's that. And because like ritual is what Nonna's holding on to and the, the structure of it to give her life this kind of 
meaning and distance from shame and stuff. So we were just like, I think, yeah, it would be. And there was something yeah. too about like how sensual it is to, mm. to smell and to watch the tomatoes sort of evaporate and kind of cook and the flesh and the kind of fertility of it that felt really erotic actually. And that's sort of how in our version Nonna Katia's story plays out. It's her sort of trying to reconnect with the eroticism that she experienced with Marcus Sanford. Um, and so she does that through this obsession with photographs or with the Posada um, and taking something, like weirdly it's kind of transgressive to make this a sensual act. Um, and I thought that was interesting on a visual level. Mm. It's really interesting too because the, 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 the process of making it to an outsider seems so like special and fun and like vibrant, but there is that kind of like the burden of... Pro, like tradition and process that you really see in the show is she's kind of like cranking the yeah. you know the <laughs> what is it <laughs> yeah she's yeah. getting the tomatoes like on her own and and that big pot yeah yeah, um, I yeah it's not played out as like a kind of joyful thing it's not it's <laughs> hard. Yeah. I remember like yeah writing it and then like in the first draft you just kind of try and get everything out and then I went back and like I was watching a lot of YouTube clips on how to actually do it so that I could get the directions a bit more accurate. And I was like, this is good luck. Like, this <laughs> is hard. <laughs> good luck to the actors. Yeah. Do you watch the one from Vice? I think I have, oh, yes. Watch that, I've yeah. watched some authentic that's ones. I've watched ones from one. Italy with yeah. subtitles. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> I like the one that's, you know, an Italian-American household and they're doing, they're all bickering because like they with all the Like with the Brooklyn guy, that yeah. one? Yeah, I've seen that Yeah, one, one of them <laughs> slices the tomatoes all the way across the top, another one cores them yeah. and they're arguing over which is better. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that happened in the rehearsal room too. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there was like, no, you just core them or you cut them in half. Yeah. Yeah, that, the same thing. No one's going to see, but it's very important that it it's is. done right yes. I know <laughs> <laughs> so your mother your mother is coming to see the show in in Sydney yeah yeah um, yeah so she, I mean we grew up we actually did grow up but it's the part of the um, film and the novel that people comment about the most mm. I have to say there's one and I think that that moment especially um, for Italian kids when they read it in the book I felt that that was the moment where they thought there are other people like us out there mm. because you did it and it wasn't a joyful day. Um, and when my mother watches it in the film, she says, "As if we were, as if we were too, um, you know, we were too tired to dance. As if we could dance at the end, you know, how, <laughs> <laughs> you know who could dance? We were just exhausted." But, um, but you know, even in the film script, uh, you know, talking about the blood, um, you know, there were so many. Like in that first opening, um, I don't know if you remember all the different voiceovers that I had to do. Like I'm talking about, I'm not going to say hundreds, but I had to do a lot of opening voiceovers. I remember at one stage I had Lady Macbeth's speech, <laughs> you know. Um, but that blood and that passion and that, you know, tomato sauce was really important to it. So, mm. um, But yeah, it was a dreaded day that... Writing about it, um, I didn't think it would be so big. Mm. But I do, I do remember the moment when I saw the beauty of it and that was when I was a bit older, not that much older, and listening to the women and the stories. And I just thought, like I love anything where you're around a table and stories come out. No one says, oh, let me tell you a story. 
they just come out mm -hmm. and I saw the beauty of it and that's when I wrote that scene. Mm. So. Mm. How old were you when you kind of came to appreciate that in the way that you did? I think I was about 18 or 19. Yeah. Um, and really the rest of the family, they weren't there. It just ended up being just a handful. Um, but, yeah, I just – I have a love of rituals now that, um, you know, I'm just very conscious having a child and knowing – I know this sounds morbid, but my mum's 82 and I know that my child won't experience a lot. So every single moment, you know, of her life with my mother is important in the sense that that's where she will learn the rituals that I, you know, I still think are important. Mm -hmm. So um, – but – Back then when I was writing it, it was more of, you know, this is such a headache. Yeah. But it's just one of the most, you know, spoke. If you get, you know, stopped all the time for it, it is um, yeah. a beloved scene in the, both the novel and the film. Yeah. Someone needs to invite you to their tomato day, Pia. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually get invited to a few. But you're like, I'm actually <laughs> busy. It, it sounds hard. hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Does anybody have a quick question for our panel? Is there one up the back there? Yeah. Could you yell out? Is that okay? Sorry, we don't have a roving mic tonight. I'm just going to repeat the question for everyone to hear and, and the recording of tonight as well. So the um, the person asking the question has read the book every year for since they were 12, they're now 21, and they're curious to know if Melina would do anything differently um, all this time later. Um, characters, situations, dialogue, and and how it feels to kind of give her work over to someone for adaptation. Um. Thank you. Like, it's just lovely to think that it's been your companion for this long. I was saying to Stephen, I'm taking... My daughter's going to be 11 in November. Um, I think she's a tiny bit too young, but I really want to take her um, to watch it. I just think this is something that I want to share with her. Um, the two things, and I don't think I'd change one, but I find that John's story... Um, I've experienced it now too often um, and I don't know, I wouldn't have changed it, I just don't know if I could have written about it. Um, you know, when you've ex I, I would say that I've experienced it quite a few times with people in my life and I just, I just don't think I'd be able to write about it um, in, in the same way. The one thing I'd change is um, the fact that she takes on her fa or wants to take on her father's name. I know. I'm so cranky with myself. We, um, <laughs> yeah. It was the 90s. I know, but I'm just <laughs> cranky with myself about yeah. that. Melina, um, we have dropped, I've dropped that. Oh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> I just think, no, if I, you know, sometimes the good thing is that you can't change your book, um, but it does make me cranky that I um, kept that in. Um, and another, I, I read this meme the other day that someone sent me. I'm going to get it wrong, um, but I really love that this person. And I'm sorry for anyone who votes for liberal, but um, <laughs> but someone said that they, I think they loved the book and they reread it and they just couldn't get past the fact that she was still interested in John Barton <laughs> after learning he's a young liberal. Yeah. So yeah, so I just think you know it's funny when you, um, but. It's only the part about the surname mm. that really I just think no way I she should have just kept I don't you know regardless of how I mean that Alabrandi name was pretty tough because her her grandfather wasn't a particularly nice person mm. but that was still Christina's name 
mm-hmm. and she should hold on to her mother's name. That's mm-hmm. my view. So You corrected it, I guess, in the film where it ends and she says, I might never be a coot, I might I wasn't an Andretti. You know, she goes through all the different options. So I had a very romantic, silly way of seeing the world <laughs> when I was younger, but um, I'm glad that it's there for me to see yeah. and, you know, to be challenged by it, I suppose. Um, is there any other questions before you wrap up? The question was about casting, is it Chanella? I'm saying her name right, um, in the role of Josie. Um, it was incredibly conscious because I wanted to know what Josie looks like now um, and for her to speak to young women, young non-binary or me- young men or um, in a new way, um, especially because there's no point in rehashing old versions of stories and I think that for me I get quite emotional about this question because I love Chanel so much and she was someone who once said she's like I could never be Josie Elibrandi um when I approached her for the role and I was like no you fucking are (laughs) because you are the most bullshit intelligent brilliant human being I've ever met so if that's touched you you, you're going to make me cry because I think it's really special and I think it's cool to see Josie in a new light and she's still fierce and she's still all of the things that in, like she appears in in the novel and the film and in this stage adaptation. But, yeah, we wanted to explore what it means to have different bodies in the space and it's the same with the casting of Jacob Koo. It's the same with the casting of Hannah Monson as... John and Ivy, like, you know, we're just experimenting with actual diversity on a stage that goes beyond just us talking about the migrant experience of Italians. Does that answer the question, babe? Good. No worries. Thank you. Chanel's performance is phenomenal. Yeah, Yeah, I wish she was here tonight to hang out with you. (laughs) I like, it would be so beautiful. Anyway, in Sydney. In in Sydney. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, Well, that about wraps us up for tonight. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, Again, tonight was presented by the Malthouse Theatre and the Wheeler Centre. Uh, Melina is going to be signing some books out in the foyer. So if you've brought your copies of um, any of her books, you can get them signed. But Hill of Content is our bookseller for tonight. So you can also pick up a copy of Looking for Ella Brandy and some of her other books. also, just a plug from me, the film is recently on Netflix. Um, so if you, unlike me, haven't held onto a DVD copy for 20 years, <laughs> you can now watch it anytime you want. Um, uh, that's all of that housekeeping. Yeah, that's everything. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Brodie Lancaster. Please join me in, welcome, in thanking Melina Marchetta, Pia Miranda, Stephen Nicolazzo and Vidya Rajan. This was Brody Lancaster in conversation with Pia Miranda, Stephen Nicolazza, Vidya Rajan, and Melina Marchetta. This event took place on the 18th of July, 2022, at the Malthouse Theatre.
The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.